we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to be in the house tonight to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, that we can sing about our Lord and Savior who came as incarnate Son of God to dwell among sinful people as we, so that he might bring salvation to us. May we have that utmost on our mind, not only during this season, but all year long, Father, giving you praise and glory for such a great salvation, to know that our sins are forgiven in Christ. And we pray, Father, that as we hear your word preached tonight, that our hearts might be convicted, that we might be moved to worship you even more worthy of that worship. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege to be able to worship you on this Sunday evening. Though we may be few, you have told us in your word where two or three are gathered in your name, that Christ is there in their midst. And we thank you for that promise that as we come together tonight, that Christ is here, that we are able to hear your truth of his great work of salvation. Pray that you would be with those unable to be with us. You know the reasons and their needs, that you would meet those needs, bring them back to us, keep them safe, especially those, Father, who would need your healing hand, that you would restore their health so that they might praise you for your goodness in their life. Those, Father, who you choose to take the glory, we pray that you would comfort them as only you can and prepare them for their heavenly home. Be with those unable to worship in person here and they worship us by video tonight, Father. We pray that you'd bless them as well. We pray, Father, that you would use us as a church to be light in this community. Use us to reach out to those that we come in contact with. We thank you for the number of visitors we had this morning and we pray, Father, that if it's your will, that you bring them to be a part of this congregation. Continue to grow us, Father, and use us to bring honor and glory to your name. Bless our messenger as he comes now to preach your glorious truth. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. We're in Ezekiel chapter 10. As Pastor Wynn has just prayed, uh, though we are few in number, that just means I get to make more eye contact with each one of you. So this should be nice and fun for all of you, right? <laughs> uh, we pick back up in the temple vision, Ezekiel, uh, in, in the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 8, <clears throat> Ezekiel reintroduced us to the vision of Yahweh and his glory. Ezekiel went on this temple tour, right, in his vision, and we saw the enemies before Yahweh, Israel and her adultery, or I'm sorry, her idolatry. In chapter 9, we saw God execute justice and vengeance by punishing these idolaters, but this was only the beginning. In chapter 10, we will see Yahweh's epic departure as the culminating, culminating final act of his judgment, the explosive final scene against Israel and her idolatry. So then let us read chapter 10 and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. So then let's read chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 1. Then I looked and behold on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim appeared above them. Actually brothers let me start at verse 11 of the previous chapter. And behold the man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist brought back word saying I have done as you commanded. 
Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, appeared above them something like a sapphire, something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with the burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes, and the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with his brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim. He went in and stood beside the wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen. And he took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked and behold, there were four wheels besides the cherubim, one beside each cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as their appearance, the four had the same likeness. As if a wheel were within a wheel. When they, were, uh, when they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And the whole body, their rims and their spokes and their wings and the wheels uh, were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were uh, called in my hear- hearing the whirling wheels. And every one of them had four faces. Like uh, the first face was the face of the cherub, the second the face of a human, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw at the Chabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, they stood, uh, when they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. Then these were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Is- that underneath the God of Israel by the Chabar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, and each had four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, this is a uh, passage where there are many moving parts, quite literally. Um, And Father, we just ask that as we tackle this more difficult and complex passage, that you would give us illumination, that you would give us grace, so that we might be able to uh, truly see this culminating act for all its profound glory. Help us now. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So then, as I said, what we just read is the culminating act of this section of Ezekiel. Remember that chapters 8 to 11 form their own literary unit within the book of Ezekiel. 
Chapters 8 to 11 are focused on the vision of God vindicating his holiness against the idolatry at Jerusalem and in the temple. Chapter 10 acts as the height of Yahweh's vindication and judgment. And the focus will be upon Yahweh's glory departing from the temple. For tonight, I want us to look at this culminating act from a few angles. There's a lot of moving parts, as I said. Uh, The way Ezekiel writes this finale... The way Ezekiel writes this finale is not typically how we as modern Western readers would set up a a final scene, right? According to our standards, Ezekiel can be seen as a sloppy writer. He constantly interrupts one sentence like the man in linen with another another sentence like the depiction of the cherubim and the wheels. It, It gets very confusing and frustrating. And it is frustrating to read. But thankfully, we know why he was doing this. He was building the drama of God's glory departing from the temple. And so, and so to help us parse out these details, I want to take each of these uh, moving pieces, each of these strands as we go forward separately. So we had three main points for tonight. The final act, the final look, and the final departure. So the final act, the final look, and the final departure. So first, I want us to look at the final act that Yahweh performs before his departure. And it involves the angelic servant clothed in linen. In chapter 9, the man clothed in linen was tasked to mark the faithful of Israel, while the remaining six angels were tasked to kill everyone in the sanctuary in the city. In the end of the chapters, at the end of this chapter in verse 11, the man clothed in linen reports back to Yahweh, I have done as you commanded me. The visual we are to see at this point, brothers, is that the executioners have started their execution in the sanctuary already. But this man, clothed in in linen, reports back to Yahweh, ready to be at his disposal. And remember that the glory of Yahweh was already at the threshold of the temple at this point. In chapter 9, verse 3, Yahweh's presence was already, it was already described as being within the threshold. God's presence was at his temple. Remember, he was executing judgment. Remember that the glory of Yahweh was already there at the temple. So after a brief depiction of Yahweh's chariot in verse 1, Yahweh gives the man in linen another task in verse 2 and 3. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house... When the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. So then, uh, what, what we are to see is that the man in linen comes into the house, the, the, the house of worship, the temple, and after he receives the instruction from Yahweh, he immediately locates the cherubim and the chariot that were outside the temple in the inner court to the south. After a brief description of the chariot and the cherubim, the, main, the focus of the man in linen focuses back in, uh, comes back in in verses 6 to 8. And so God commands them. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire between the two whirling wheels from between the two cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherub to the fire that was in linen. I'm sorry. From between the cherub to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. So then, uh, what, 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 what do we make of this? The cherubim, we see, gathered coals of fire for the man in, the, in linen. 
And his task by God was to spread them over the city. From this text, we can be certain how the man went in. We we can't be certain how the man went into the chariot where these coals were. Uh, And we we can't quite describe why coals were near the cherubim, uh, near the wheels in the first place. We, We just don't know. Uh, one, one possibility is that the idea of fire is always connected to God's theophanies. This is evident from his title, Yahweh is a consuming fire, right? He, he is personified as fire. And with fire comes coals. But I would like to also point out that the terminology burning coals is used of Yahweh's judgment in various places in the Old Testament. For, exa- uh, for example, in 2 Samuel 22, David praises God for rescuing him from Saul. And in this passage, um, and I hope you can recall some of the imagery we saw in chapter 1, and how it parallels with what we see David here say about Yahweh and these burning coals. So 2 Samuel 22, verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked, because he, Yahweh, was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fires from his mouth, glowing coals... Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. So there are some other places in the Psalms that speak to this idea. And some even equate the, these uh, fiery coals as almost as God's arrows, his arsonary of some sorts. But I think we get the idea The fire given to the man in linen is ultimately God's chosen weapon of war and judgment. This is personified in the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Hellfire came down. So with all this in mind, uh, and and with this said about the man and his task, we, we should note this. We should note that the man in linen, the man God commanded, we do not see him again after verse 7. He's gone. After the coals are given to the man in linen, he is no longer in view in the remainder of the text. It's similar to the executioners of chapter 9, right? Their work is open-ended. We don't see any more about them. Since this is a vision of judgment to take place in the future, we don't see the immediate results of God's judgment. But we do know it's coming. This scene is similar to how the protagonist in an action movie Uh, has just lit the fuse to burn down the enemy's compound. All we need to know is that destruction is set forth, right? It's set in motion. Once God departs from Jerusalem, his justice against sin will be made known in all of its horrifying character. Literally, God has just set fire his house and his city, and he's getting out of Dodge. So with all this in mind, brothers, what should we take away from this? Uh, for me, as I was going through and studying this section, this question just, keep, uh, just kept coming back to me. What should we make of this time gap, right, between Israel's sin, uh, of, uh, of Ezekiel's vision of Israel's sin and God's judgment? In 2, Sam, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 25, we see God fulfill this promise of judgment through fire when Nebuchadnezzar himself comes against Jerusalem. This is uh, 2 Kings 25, verses 8 to 11. But at this point in Ezekiel's ministry, it would be roughly five years before Jerusalem officially fell to Nebuchadnezzar. So why did God take five years before he brought judgment? 
Why take five years? Why not immediate? My immediate thought was so that, you know, he, he would save some and that some would, would, would repent and be spared. And I don't think this is wrong necessarily, but we don't get any notion of that in the text. And we don't get that anywhere else of this passage, of, of this scenario. If anything, the people of Israel only spiraled more and more out of control in their idolatry. So why allow all this continual hardening, hardening and rebellion for five whole years before God actually fulfilled his promises to judge them? Why? Given the surrounding context, especially of chapter 9, I believe the answer lies in the nature of God's justice. By God wisely allowing the season of rebellion, sinners evidence themselves as what they truly are. Hardened enemies and criminals. In our doleful and sometimes sin, sin, uh, sinful ignorance, we like to think that sinners would turn to God if only they had one more chance or had a little more time to get their act together. Maybe it's because we're compassionate, but I truly believe it's just our ignorance. But this is far that this act of being this kind of doleful and ignorant is far from what the scriptures describe here about man. As we saw in previous weeks, unless man is chosen by God to receive mercy, he will continue in sin and rebellion. In both chapters 9 and 11, Ezekiel pleads and questions God for why he would destroy the remnant of Israel. And God's response to him is simply this, Ezekiel. Their sinners and their sins are exceedingly great. That is why my eye will not spare nor have pity. I'm going to justly bring their deeds upon their heads. Though we're not to be fatalistic, brothers, we should simply recognize this scriptural truth. That God has prepared some men simply to be the vessels of sin. And that God's glory would be manifested by their destruction. As Paul states, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Romans 9. Sometimes, brothers, God's patience is for man's repentance. Yes, we need to affirm that. But sometimes, but sometimes his patience is to simply evidence what men actually are. Ungodly sinners. Sometimes, brothers, it's very easy for us just to have kind of a southern outlook on things. Is that you, you see someone whose life is just a shambles. And you say, oh, just give them enough time. Give them enough time. And they'll get their act together. Maybe not. Maybe not. It could be God's purposes to have that young man or that young woman continue down a path of destruction, ultimately for God's glory and for him to reign in his justice. Brothers, these are sobering truths. And may we recognize that unless it was for the sheer grace and pleasure of our God, we would be just like those vessels of destruction. Brothers, if anything that this point teaches us, that this final act of justice teaches us, is that we need to cling tightly 
we need to cling tightly to the mercy of our God. For he is truly our only hope. So then, brothers, moving on. We come to our second main point for tonight, the final look. For this point, I want us to look at the interjections that we see within chapter 10 and the depictions of Yahweh and his chariot. Just to recap, we we saw that in chapter 1 how the cherubim acted as a royal guard that supported uh, Yahweh's chariot and they were attended by these wheels. In chapter 10, we get a fuller depiction of what's taking place here and what this chariot would have looked like. But uh, for the second point, I, I want us to see how these depictions, how these depictions heighten the drama of Yahweh leaving the temple. I want us to see what, what Ezekiel is doing here by these various depictions. To help conceptualize what I'm getting at, uh, let, let me share with you uh, this illustration. Uh, in the 1980s, there's this great show called The Night Rider. Uh, someone remembers it. I actually had to look it up because uh, I was not one who was originally part of uh, the Night Riding fan crew, but I, I've actually been getting into some old reruns, and I, just, I fell in love with the show. It's a great show. Um, it, starred David, it stars David Hasselhoff as Michael Knight. Uh, in the show, Michael Knight was a detective, uh, more or less, whose partner was a robotic talking car named Kit. In the show's formula, Kit, the robot car, acted as the solution for Michael in, in every episode. Whenever Kit showed up in a scene, you knew that the drama and the action of this particular, uh, this particular episode was at its peak, right? Whenever the audience saw Kit racing along with this iconic music in the background, we were prompted to feel the rising tension or the excitement as Michael and Kit tried to save the day. So goes the show. And so with this dynamic in mind, uh, let's look at the text. First, I want us to see that in the first place, God begins Ezekiel's vision in chapter 8 with a figure of Yahweh more prominent than the chariot. In verse 2, or in chapter 8, verse 2, when we're first reintroduced to this vision of Yahweh in this literary unit, uh, we see this. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man, Below was the appearance of, the waist, uh, of his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. And so what we are to include there, we see that figure, he is the main focus, but we should appropriately assume that his chariot is there with him, because he says that is the vision that I saw in the valley, which included both the figure and the chariot. We are to assume that the chariot was there in the beginning of the vision, but the chariot is merely in the background. It wasn't playing an important enough role to be quite mentioned yet. But in chapter 9, verse 3, we see Yahweh exit the chariot in order that he might go into the temple threshold. Right? So in chapter 9, chapter 9, not chapter 10, but chapter 9, Yahweh's presence was already in the threshold. We see Yahweh exit and he's there. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub. He, he uh, departed. He mounted off the, the chariot. Had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And so remember that God did this because it is evocative of a king entering his throne room to render justice in chapter 9. All this to say that a detailed description of the chariot has not yet been given at this point in Ezekiel's vision. 
But then we come to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. Ezekiel gives a description that seems to come out of nowhere. Right? We're right in this middle of, of Yahweh speaking to the man clothed in linen. But then we get this weird description of the chariot. As Yahweh, in chapter, one, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Ezekiel gives us a description that comes out of nowhere. As Yahweh continues his command with the man in linen from chapter 9, that's why we read from chapter 9, Ezekiel interjects a brief reminder of what the chariot looked like. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse there was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like sapphire in the appearance of a throne. Again, it's the chariot that we saw in chapter 1. After Yahweh tells the man in linen to go get the fire from the cherubim in verses 2 and 3, another abrupt, abrupt description of the chariot comes back in verses 4 and 5. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, which is interesting because he's already away from the cherub. Why is that mentioned? And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. This has already happened in verse 9. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. So what's going on with these interruptions? Why, why, is, he being, why is Yahweh's commands to the man in linen being broken up with these depictions of this chariot? Why do we get this clunky text? Right? Some have suggested that Ezekiel is trying to show two angles of, a, of, a different, uh, of the same scene. Chapters 9 and 10 are basically overlap. They're the same scene, just from a different emphasis, or two scenes that overlap. But I find the solution unsatisfactory. In my view, the events of chapter 9 and 10 are to be read sequentially, that this is all to flow together. So let me give you my take. If I was the editor of the ESV Bible, which I really wish I was, because they let me down this time, I would actually put parentheses around verse 1 and around verses 4 and 5. And if you would like to do that now, go ahead. As we saw, as we saw last time, uh, excuse me, they're, they're, these, uh, these verses, chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, they are brief descriptions purposely intended to interrupt our reading. They're purposely intended to interrupt our reading so that the audience can recall what the chariot personified in the vision earlier in chapter 1. As we saw, the vision of the chariot was originally intended to evoke fear and awe in the reader. We are to remember that it's a war chariot, right? So unlike chapters 8 and 9, chapter 10 is putting the chariot on display. It's putting the chariot on display so that the audience can recall the fearful and glorious imagery of the chariot. They are to remember that it is God Almighty who speaks from his throne. These interruptions are intended to make us tremble and fear what God was going to do with his war chariot. His glory was already there, but it, it re-emphasizes to us in verses 4 and 5 that ultimately, is that's remind us, the chariot's there. Remember, he's already down there, but the chariot's still there. So with these interruptions hopefully understood a little bit, verses 68 take on a fuller tone. The focus is not merely on the man in linen and his final act of judgment, but now it appropriately becomes a cherubim. The man in linen receives the weapons to destroy the city from the cherubim, and then he's out of the story. Once the man in linen leaves the scene, the audience is left to marvel only at the cherubim and the chariot and all their fear-inducing majesty. 
the audience is left just there to be in awe of God's chariot. And so from verses 9 to 14, Ezekiel leads us by the hand to marvel at the grandeur of the chariot. For our overall depiction, Chris has included a visual aid in the bulletin. Um, but let me read this passage, and as we read, maybe this little bulletin will help. This is Ezekiel 10, verses not, verse 9. And, looked, and I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, and I'm going to change this, the, the reading of the ESV here, their whole body, their backs, and their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes, or I should say full of bedazzled jewels. It was bedazzled, jeweled, or bejeweled rather. And the wheels, uh, the wheels that had the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And each one of them had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second face of a human, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. So just a few observations to refresh ourselves. First, remember that the cherubim were evocative of temple ornaments and furniture, right? They resembled bronze that glistened in the presence of fire. The cherubim were arranged in this four-wall pattern. It's a little bit different than what you see in, your, in the bulletin. It's more of they're not on the corners, they're on the exact sides. But they're in this four-wall pattern. And they had the various faces pointing in the four cardinal directions. And the wheels looked like ordinary wheels. Nothing extraterrestrial about these. So verses 9 to 11 and 14 repeat a lot of what we saw in the first vision. So we don't need to go that much into detail. Second, verses 9 to 14 gives us more details about the relationship between the wheels and the cherubim. In verse 12, the ESV translated their whole body, their rims, their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had. Personally, I do not like this translation. This is no bueno. I believe that the footnote that the ESV provides is much better. I'm assuming that all of y'all had ESVs. Sorry, Pastor Thomas. Uh, their, their translation, the translation I would provide uh, is their whole body, speaking of the cherubim, their backs, speaking of the cherubim, their hands, speaking of the cherubim, and their wings, again, speaking of the cherubim. This puts the focus on the entirety of both the cherubim and the wheels as a combined entity. Remember that we said that the eyes were not this nightmarish depiction of wheels covered with eyes. It would be better for us to translate it eyes as bedazzled or bejeweled. It's all around them. It's not just the wheels, but it's also now on the cherubim. Meaning not only the wheels, but also the cherubim were bejeweled like fine bronze ornaments. That was evocative of temple uh, imagery. So both the wheels and the cherubim were ornamental in appearance. Third, and finally, that the cherubim are connected to the wheels by virtue of what we could call a caster. The phrase whirling wheels that we see in verse 13 and used above in verses 2 and 3 are different from the word wheeled used in chapter 1. Many scholars recognize that this whirling wheel as a caster 
And for those who do not know, because I didn't, uh, the piece that the caster is that piece uh, that connects a wheel to like a, a, the bottom of furniture, right? That's the idea of the caster. Uh, how Ezekiel describes it here and the words he uses indicates that God's chariot would have looked more like an ornamental rolling ottoman in some measure. It's still war chariot, but takes on more of a, a furniture type appeal. I think the visual aid capture, captures this essence fairly well. The chariot would have looked closer to a piece of temple furniture more resembling the ark. And this, the ark, and this evocative imagery would evoke a, a holy awe in the original audience, right? The Ark of the Covenant was a terrifying piece of furniture in the history of Israel. Nations were cursed by it, and Uzzah died by simply placing his hand upon it. The holy furniture of God's chariot was intended to evoke fear because it was the throne from which God Almighty spoke and resided, similar to how the Ark uh, 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 interacted. So with all this in place, I believe Ezekiel confirms this point by underscoring exactly what we saw in the first place at the Chabar Canal. For example, in verse 22, he writes, These are the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chabar Canal. I knew, meaning that he knew it now. We implied in chapter 1 that these were cherubs, but the name cherub was not actually used in chapter 1. He now supplies it now here in chapter 10. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. So by recognizing that these living creatures from chapter one, from chapter one were cherubim arranged in ornamental fashion, Ezekiel is leading us. He's leading us and the original audience to conclude that this chariot was not only for war, but this chariot... But that this chariot, I got off basis here, I'm so sorry. Ah, there we go. That this chariot was the holy temple throne that God exercised his might from. So by the focus on the chariot, Ezekiel is adding depth to the vision of Yahweh and his glory that we saw in chapter 1. The chariot was God's throne, yes. But it was also his ark, the, the, the fuller, bigger ark. And its presence is to make us tremble like the ark did. So then to reiterate, whatever Ezekiel, uh, whenever Ezekiel alludes, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> just, uh, just to reiterate the point. Ezekiel alludes right now to Yahweh's chariot so that we might be filled with fear. That's the idea here. Once Yahweh ascends his throne chariot, we are to tremble. That's the idea. As we saw Yahweh in his temple, his throne room, that is horrifying enough. But as we will see, Yahweh mounting his chariot is the height of his judgment. Ezekiel is so focused on the chariot because the chariot will be the means by which God's presence, his benevolent presence, will formally depart from Jerusalem. Just as God came in his chariot to destroy, he will also depart on it, leaving behind any chance of hope. Similar to how the nations who captured the ark were struck with curses. They were struck by God when he was there through the ark. But they weren't blessed when he left. Certainly the case. Though the focus is ultimately on Yahweh leaving, 
I want us to feel the anticipation and the dread that the original audience would have felt as they saw the chariot coming into more prominence as they read this chapter. When Kit came on the scene in the Night Rider, the audience cheered. But with God's chariot being described here, the audience is left with an ominous silence. Brothers, I want us to feel the weight of that silence, of that dread. I want us to feel the weight of what is taking place in Ezekiel's writings here. The constant cuts and focus on the chariot were to heighten what was going to, make, uh, what was going to take place in verses 15 to 18, which describes Yahweh's final departure. It's culminating to that final moment. But what do we do with Ezekiel's hyping up this scene? What can we take away from him evoking awe and terror from his audience? Brothers, I believe the only appropriate application I can come from, uh, that, that we can get from this, is that what we, what we can get a, take away from this is that God's revealed holiness, brothers, God's revealed holiness is to humble us and to evoke fear and awe. Even for us Christians, we are to tremble before our God in fear. For example, our Christ, when his transfiguration took place upon the mountain and the voice of God thundered from heaven, his disciples, what did they do? Did they just shrug it off? Oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. No, his disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. And in Revelation 1, John saw the transfigured Christ as well in his vision. And he fell before him as though he were dead, the text says. Brothers, if you take anything away from tonight, if this is the only thing that you take away, I need you to ask whether you have a healthy fear of our Lord Jesus. His glory and majesty are meant to strike fear into our hearts and to humble us. Brothers, have you seen God in his glory and have you bowed before him? That's the question. Do you see God arrayed in his majesty as the almighty God, El, El Shaddai? You see that in the person of Jesus Christ or do you see a wimp? Brothers, he is no wimp. He's no peace lover. He's the one who will break knees. Brothers, those who tremble before him will find peace in him. He is good, but he is dangerous. For those who refuse to bow to him, their knees will be shattered on that last day. This is to strike fear in our heart and to make us tremble. Brothers, take this with you tonight. Our God is holy, and we must never, ever, So then, brothers, let's move on. It's too weighty to even stand upon for a moment. Moving on. We come to our third and final point. The final departure. For this point, I want us to look at Yahweh's departure from the temple. Primarily from Yahweh uh, being in the threshold to him mounting his chariot. That's the idea of him moving uh, from the threshold to the chariot. This is a significant event. In verses 15 to 19, we read of Yahweh's departure from the threshold of the temple to his chariot. 
verse 15, and the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chabar Canal. And when they went up, the wheels went beside them. And uh, when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, they stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh went out from the threshold of the house, the temple, and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate, east, east gate of the house of Yahweh. And the glory of, God of, his, of the God of Israel was over them. So in verses 15 to 17, we get another detailed account of how the cherubim and the wheels interacted. We are to see that they were really one entity, one entity, similar to a table with wheels on the legs, as it were. But the main verb uh, for all these intricate parts is mounted up, mounted up. The idea is that the cherubim and the chariot were getting ready to depart as one unified uh, piece of furniture, holy chariot. So in verses 18, the glory of God goes out from the threshold of the temple and he stands on top of the cherubim where the throne of sapphire would be. So notice two things just in that movement. First, we are to see that Yahweh's glory has now officially departed the temple. The temple is no longer fitted for God's glory because it has become a synagogue of Satan. Second, notice that Yahweh does not even sit Though there is a throne, he stands. Brothers, this is a position of battle. With Yahweh upon his chariot, the cherubim mount up and they fly towards the eastern gate, possibly the outer and eastern gate. Remember that the eastern gate is associated with sin, right? The scapegoat that bore Israel's sin would be let out of that gate through the city into the wilderness and it would go in the eastward direction. But because of Israel's gross and great sin, Yahweh reverses this relationship. The sin was not in the east. It was concentrated all at the temple that was in the west where these idolaters worshipped. That's a profound movement upon God's part. So before departing from the city, Yahweh will give one more indictment in chapter 11, which we'll see in, in a few weeks. But at the, at, at the very end of chapter 11... We read where Yahweh's destination will end up. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountains that was on the east side of the city. So we see the trajectory of Yahweh's departure. The glory of God is completely removing itself from the temple in the city of Sin, which was located towards the west. So then, brothers, chapter 10 and its finale in chapter 11 are a tragic, are a tragic depiction of sinners being cut off from the presence of God. The vision and all its subsequent historical fulfillment are one of the lowest points in all of redemptive history. The glory of God is gone. Not since Adam has God's glory been so resolutely removed from the presence of his people. In 1 Samuel 4, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And this was a tragic moment. When Eli's daughter heard the, that the Ark had been removed, she named her newborn son Ichabod, which means glory has departed. But in comparison, Ezekiel 10 is the height of departure. This is the height, the lowest point of Israel's history. 
the temple wasn't merely captured. God removed himself from the temple. God's people were so corrupt that God had to remove himself from their presence. Brothers, this is a damning indictment. To be counted as so unholy, unrighteous, and polluted is to invite death by divine departure. Death by divine departure. To have God's glory removed is to have all fellowship and blessed communion with him severed. Without the fount of life in their midst, Israel would die both a spiritual and physical death. Without the light of his countenance, there is no peace and blessing. Only misery and curse in this dark and sinful world. Brothers, at this point, it's so easy to fly to Christ right here. At this point, many preachers love to fly to Christ. To show that he has brought us back to God's presence. And, and this is a wonderful truth. That is certainly appropriate for the text. As those united to Jesus Christ through faith, we have assurance that we will have eternal communion and fellowship with our God. Amen. By turning from our sins and turning to Christ for forgiveness and renewal, we receive the fullness of spiritual life in Him. Yes and amen. And this is a comforting truth for us, especially, especially as we look and mourn such a tragic moment in biblical history. But by fleeing to Christ so quickly, we might actually take the bite out of this passage, which would serve us so much good if we just simply meditate a moment. If we just shrug off this passage so we can get to the next scene or get to a happier point, then we will lose the importance of this passage to our own detriment. The threat of God's departure is to give believers, is given to believers so that they might follow so that they might not follow in the same paths of unrighteousness. Remember that Ezekiel was preaching in Babylon and not in Jerusalem. He was given this vision so that his audience in Babylon would repent, not Jerusalem. It's a very important uh, reminder. God's threats, God's threats in this revelation, in this vision, are for our benefit, brothers. We are to tremble before God and his departure, and we are to repent. Yes, God will preserve his people, but in his sovereignty, brothers, he uses the means of his threats and his punishments to bring his people to repentance in life and to so persevere them and to preserve them. To use a New Testament illustration, Christ actually threatens the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And as he says throughout, only those who conquer, those who repent, those who repent will receive eternal life. So Christ uses the means of threats and punishments, true threats, not empty threats, true threats, to ensure that his people will persevere to the end. In fact, the imagery of the first letter to the church in Ephesus parallels much of Ezekiel 10. Let's read, if you would, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. This will be our last passage for tonight. Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, John is recording the words of Jesus as he speaks the words to Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patience. 
patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves an apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Good job. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up uh, for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Again, good job. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, no empty threat. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, life, which is the paradise of God. So then, brothers, by forsaking their first love, the Christians, uh, Christ rather, threatens the Ephesian church by taking away the lampstand. Again, the lampstand, if we remember from Leviticus, the lampstand was a symbol of God's benevolent presence. Similar to how the cloud of fire uh, was to act at the temple. So when Christ threatens to remove the lampstand, he is threatening to remove God's glory from the church. Do you follow? He's threatening to remove God's glory from this church. And notice how the lampstand is equated with the promise of eternal life. If the Ephesians repented, the the lampstand would remain and they would then be able to partake of the tree of life, the promise, the paradise of God. So brothers, to, to close our time together, I want us to consider this. There's much that we can take away from from these scenes uh, that we've looked at in Ezekiel, in chapter 10. This is a sombering and sobering passage of Scripture. We are to see that we are, by the mercy of God, not vessels of destruction, which we so rightfully deserve. But at the same time, we should behold God's glory, and that should humble us and strike fear into us appropriately. And with this here, we should understand that God does threaten us. Our God, our Christ, he threatens us. But he threatens us with a purpose. That we might not be undone, but that we would repent. That we would change, that we would turn from our sins and give ourselves to our God. That is the entire purpose of the threat. That we would give ourselves to our Christ. But with that in mind, brothers, in the life of the average Christian, sin is an unavoidable, unavoidable reality. We will sin in this life. Amen? We will sin. We will sin greatly at times. And some, brothers, will occasionally fall into a season, if not all of us, fall into a season of spiritual drought and deep sin. And this is a sad reality. I know of no brother who has not faced this before. I myself is the most horrifying of times in my spiritual life. Some of you, maybe even today, may be in deep sin. There might be a secret sin in your life that's too terrible to even deal with. Too shameful to deal with. Too agonizing to deal with. And we bring that here to you, with you tonight. 
You may right now, brothers, feel the weight of this sin upon your soul, but you don't know the way forward. You, you could believe, you, you, you could believe as, as someone in this state that a true Christian could never commit such sins. You may even believe that these threats that we see here in the text are aimed right at you. And you're the kind of person that won't conquer because you're so riddled with sin. You don't taste the assurance of that salvation that you once had. And you fear above all things. Am I of God's elect? Do I know the mercy of God? Does God love me? I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had these thoughts before when in deep sin. You don't taste that assurance. And you feel that your Christian walk is a sham. So then what do you do? What do you do? Where do you turn in Scripture? Brothers, we turn to the threats. That's what we need. We need the threats of God. Our Lord is quite clear. He uses threats to bring us to repentance. Our Lord is so good to us that he uses threats to bring us to himself. Our Lord tells us and calls us to simply repent. Brothers, Christ, if you're anything like me, especially when I was just figuring this Christian thing out, Christ doesn't come after you by wagging a finger in your face and shaming you into the kingdom of God. That is not our Christ's way. No, Christ's purposes, brothers, are gracious and kind for sinners such as us. He calls you, yes, to forsake and confess and repent from that sin, that deep sin, that abiding sin, that secret sin. He calls you to repent. Yes. But brothers, you don't repent by going up the ladder of your sanctification again to where your relationship with, with God was really good. Brothers, that's legalist mentality speaking. Christ calls you. Christ calls you to your repentance. Christ calls for your repentance. Because it is ultimately a call to come to be with him again. He's saying to you, brothers, enjoy me again. Brothers, there's no hoops, there's no ladders. There's just perfect loving fellowship with our Christ. Brothers, for those who are in such sin. Brothers, for those who are in such sin, you may feel that there is no point. You may feel that you are doomed in Jerusalem. But as long as you have life in your breath and a heart producing godly sorrow over your sin, you are the exiles Christ speaks a sober word. You are the exiles that Christ is speaking to and his word is, repent. Be with me. Brothers, I exhort you at this time to remember, if you ever go through this period of spiritual drought and depression, I tell you, brothers, I exhort you to remember God's purposes and his graces. Our Christ is gentle and lowly. If you have deep sorrow of your sin, confess it to your God, and he will accept you. Yes, there is shame in that sin. Of course there's shame. It's not as we are to be.
but there's only misery for those who don't believe that God can actually forgive them. Oh, brothers, our God is so much bigger than that. He can forgive the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, murderers, rapists, the worst of the lot. If he can forgive the one who denied him when he needed him the most, he can surely forgive you. Brothers, I ask now, as we are humbled by this word, as we think upon even our own sin in our own lives, brothers, come to Christ and confess, and he will happily forgive you. Brothers, may we remember that we are united to a loving Savior, a loving Savior who actually does love us, and he will happily forgive you. And he has come to seek and save the lost, even the lost who are already among God's own people. Brothers, he is for us and not against us. He is here with open arms awaiting to receive you. Brothers, come, repent, come to Christ, and you will again experience his loving presence and that sweet assurance of salvation for all your life to come. That is our hope, and that is our prayer. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you are good. In the midst of your holiness, Lord, we see the simple, riddled uh, agony that we are in. There is no hope apart from your mercy. But Lord, we take delight knowing that even though you are a terrifying, holy God, You are God, nonetheless, who says, come. Father, may those who are deep in sin not shirk, not wait till, tarry till they're better, because they will never come at all. But Lord, as we come to you, let us come to you in confidence, knowing that you are able to forgive the chief of sinners, such as I and such as us. Lord, we delight knowing that you are our God. Please be with us now in this remainder of this worship. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen.